What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli. The NBA season continues to roll along through the many, many coronavirus-related postponements, and we are going to keep rolling along with a mailbag full of questions that you, the listeners, have submitted. Uh, Before we get into that, a shout-out to our sponsor for this podcast, Action Network. You'll be hearing from them shortly. And also a reminder just to subscribe and leave some reviews wherever you're getting this podcast from, whatever medium that may be. Now, Dan, how's it going? I am doing well, better than the Portland Trailblazers anyway, after all the injuries that they have oh, suffered. But that how... CJ McCollum injury is just gutting. And and the same week with Nurkic. That is like Yeah, I mean I think like just the fact that Nurkic wasn't season ending, I feel less bad about that one, even though it still sucks. The, and the CJ one is weird because it's he's being reevaluated in four weeks, but it's like that doesn't seem like a four week injury. I'm not a doctor though. He was and look. He's been he upped his three point volume, been better passer, been shooting the lights out from anywhere. He's at like sixty percent from mid range this year. There's just based off how he was playing, I wouldn't have put him in the top three, and I didn't because I just wrote about this. Like he deserved some love for in the sense of oh, could he win a second most improved player award? The answer is no, but it's like closer to a yes than you would think that it would be this late into his career. Just throwing it out there. I'll go out on a limb and you can tell me how sturdy this limb is. And I'm not saying this would have been the case going forward, but he's been the Portland Trailblazers best player this season. Yeah, he's definitely been the most consistent. And aside like Dame might still just have like the the good higher variance baked in. That's he has the spurtability for sure. Yeah. But I think and look, what happens now for them? That's the first question of the mailbag that you didn't segue into yet. What what do the Portland Trailblazers do at this point? The defense is still just blah they're sixth in the west at eight and six i think some of the stuff is low-hanging fruit like hey terry stotts maybe don't play in his canner and carmelo anthony together ever ever again like ever but you know they have Derek jones jr and they have robert covington you need both you need one of those guys to be hitting threes and it's not going to be Derek jones jr i guess to play them consistently um do they need another big man do you lean into harry giles i'd like to see more of just mellow and roco up front uh hassan whiteson has not been terrible uh, for them, I go. Wait, it's not Whiteside's not there anymore. He's on the Kings. Excuse me. Um, That's why he hasn't been terrible for them. Well, he actually hasn't been terrible for the Kings. Is actually what I was going to to say. He's no Rashawn Holmes, though. Throwing that out there at this moment, though, I don't know what the do you do. You think I'll wrap it up with this? Do you think like there's a chance that this ends up sort of shaping Portland season a little bit, or do you view vote both of these as? And look, the other the underlying part of this. Nurkic wasn't Nurkic before he was injured. Like, it just no, wasn't there rough. on defense, yeah. especially. I think this is one of those where you kind of have to ride it out just because you built this roster around that star backcourt. And the the pieces here, they don't feel that fungible. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know that they're really going to have the ammo to go swinging at the trade deadline and and go get another like star caliber player to complement Lillard. I think you kind of got to hope that he's going to be bubble Lillard again and that everything coalesces around him. Uh, Nurkic is going to be back in what, four to six weeks, I think is the initial timetable. 
Um, and at least so, that's just it's I'm saying this in quotes, I don't see it's just the wrist. I don't mean to downplay it, but right. the foot injury that McCollum has, the left foot I think it was, that's more concerning to me. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, so I, I think you just kind of have to go with the flow here and s- continue to evaluate the pieces that you brought in and the internal improvements that you're expecting just in in larger roles. It, it wasn't the plan, but I, I think that there is enough wing and forward depth to, to get by with some makeshift lineups and just hope that Dame gets on a heater again and again. The quick point I will make is I think maybe now that Nasir Little had been cleared a couple weeks ago. Like I, I think you try a little bit more of him, like try and play smaller. Like I already mentioned would be the, the Rocco Mello lineups is as well too. And uh, if Tara Bowen Biggs is listening to this, it's time to just unleash Gary Trent Jr. Even more so than he was all already unleashed. And that might be able, he has a little, he doesn't have the playmaking juice that Shiji McCollum did this year. And he's not going to have the off the dribble juice either, but he has a little bit more of a floor game than people give him credit for. So maybe he can help you replace. I do hope they don't fall into too much dependence on Mello though, because that's, you know, someone else who could create his own shot, but he's just not the answer in 2021. I just want to see more Harry Giles. That's what I want out of this. That's why I'm hoping they don't sign a big. Sorely disappointed. Correct. I'm with you. How are you doing though? I'm doing pretty well. You know, it's uh, there are up and down days when you are parenting a toddler, as I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to. And I'm uh, I'm coming off an, an afternoon filled of tantrums before we're we're recording this one. So this is a breath no, of fresh for, air, just getting to talk basketball here. No, no, not about me, about your son. How was he today? Oh, that's a good question. I, I thought we were talking about you there. Uh, are you ready to dive into this mailbag, though? I am. After that fake. Portland Trailblazers question that didn't really exist. It's a good question, though. <laughs> it is a good question. So, all right, let's start here. This is super big picture, but the question comes from uh, Mr. 999 underscore AZ. What is the team you think should blow it up like OKC and Houston next? Could it be Minnesota? It very well could be Minnesota, but I want it to be San Antonio still. You know, San Antonio is just still sitting on the periphery of that playoff chase in the Western Conference as as they've seemed to often be in that position over the last few years. And it feels like every veteran on their roster is an impending free agent after this season. So I just I, I want to see the Spurs just fully commit to this youth movement and give all the minutes to the young guys because there's there are still depths to this roster that they have not plumbed yet, even though they're giving significant time to Keldon Johnson, to DeJounte Murray, uh, to Trey Jones, to Lonnie Walker, who has shown some tremendous flashes in small spurts. So I, I just I want to see them commit to that full scale so that full scale teardown. Yeah. What's interesting is the Derek White injury has solved some of the conundrums and if they were at full strength, maybe it gets more complicated. I think the biggest thing is because the the players that you would move, Patty Mills, Rudy Gay, Aldridge, and DeRozan are all in expiring contracts. Unless you want to take back bad money, I don't know why you move them. Uh, so I would say more like, hey, let's up Devin Vassell's minutes over Rudy Gay. And then when Derek White comes back, like let that come at the expense of Patty Mills and DeMar DeRozan. But my pick would actually be the – and look, this this definitely runs counter, as it probably always does, to where they are in the standings. They have not completely fallen out of the playoff picture yet, but the Orlando Magic – it's just time. Jonathan Isaac is down. Uh, Markel Fultz is down. You don't. It's another perpetual answer. Yeah, you need. You still need a point guard, and I don't think you should go out and try and trade for one. You have Evan Fournier's expiring deal. I think Aaron Gordon should be an asset. His value is all over the place relative to the rest of the league, but he's shooting better on threes. The passing is is still there, and I still think if you threw him onto a team like the Boston Celtics or Minnesota, where he could be more of a play finisher. Uh, and have better spacing around him. I think he ends up being really good. And he's someone whose defense like always kind of falls under the radar for me, where no, you're not going to vote him all defense, but he has wing type range and you can get viable small ball five minutes out of him. I don't know that blowing it up could include Nikola Vucevic, just trading him. I mean, because he's really good. He's going to be, if he keeps, he's going to be a, do we call them fake all-stars this year? Ceremonial all-stars? What are they? Like, what is the... What do, what do we call them? So he's going to be an let's all-star. Let's go a ceremonial all-star. Let's he's, go with that. He's going to be a ceremonial all-star, but 
just the way that bigs are viewed and how saturated this, the center market is, I don't know that, it, you know, including this season, that deal is, is pretty, is pretty spicy. It's three years and $72 million, two years and 46 million after this one. But looking at Aaron Gordon, Fournier, Terrence Ross should be evidently movable. I think it's time to blow it up. And with regards to Minnesota, I don't know what blowing it up looks like, because are you going to give up on Jared Culver, Anthony Edwards already? Uh, I guess they have, like, you could look to move D'Angelo Russell, but I don't know that anyone's going to want to move uh, a trade for him when he has, including this season, three years and $90 million left on his deal. So there's that. And then I guess if you want to give up on Malik Beasley, but does anyone necessarily want? You shouldn't yet. Yeah. Does yeah. anyone and any, does anyone want that contract? Uh, Juan Hernan Gomez, who wants that contract, they feel like they have a – a harder path to blowing it up than Orlando just because not that they don't have anyone desirable. I just don't know what it, it looks like. Is it trading everyone except Culver Edwards towns? Is that what blowing it up would, I don't know what it means. I'm I honest. Guess. I don't know what it yeah, means. I'm, yeah. I'm not quite sure. I think the better low hanging fruit here is, is the wizards where like, there's no excuse for keeping Bradley Beal for too much longer. He's the hot, he's going to be the hottest player on the trade market. He's 27. He's leading the league in scoring. He has, you know, a, a long-term contract, you know, he's not going to be leaving the new location anytime soon. And and beyond that, you might be able to get something back for for Robin Lopez, for Ish Smith, for Howell Neto. There are pieces where you can get these second round picks and, and clear up space for the many youngsters on that roster. And then when Russell Westbrook is healthy, just let him run the show and you'll at least remain somewhat competitive. Do you think there would be a willing taker for the five-year $80 million contract that Davis Berton signed over the offseason. Yes, I do. I think that shooting plays so well, and if you put him on a better team, that shooting is only going to look better. Yeah, and his three-point percentage has been on the come-up of late. That's where I look at Joe Harris's deal, where Marcus Morris had 464, and I'm like, I'm okay with it. Davis Berton's at five and eighty makes me a little uncomfortable. Can't it's not the play. greatest value, but like just the idea of Davis Berton's is valuable in and of itself. If you put him on the floor with two star caliber players, he's going to space it out for them. Do you think Bradley Beal is still on this team after the March twenty fifth trade deadline? Yes, because they're the Wizards. That's fair. I would say no because it's just so obvious now, but it's also been obvious for a while. And you did give up a first round pick to get. Russell Westbrook, who's injured now, but that experiment has flopped thus far. He just looks – he couldn't finish once he was at the rim, and he just wasn't getting there at anywhere near the same clip that he has, not just over his career, but even in recent seasons. Blake Griffin and Russell Westbrook are probably my two least favorite players to watch this season because I enjoy watching them both at full strength so much, and it just doesn't feel like we're going to get to see that again. It's just – it's a bummer watching West, this the shells of themselves westbrook's fall feels more like stark than like it more sudden i guess would be the word than griffin's because at least he's coming off of last year with that entire knee injury i didn't expect it to him just avoid trying to get to the rim or not being able yeah. to do it when he's you know when he hasn't played a ton this season with westbrook though it's just i know he was bad in the bubble but I, this is just something that we have never seen yeah it's it's not fun to watch Hardwood Knox listeners, I hope you're all sitting down because we have to tell you something monumental. We love sports betting, and whether you've been betting for a while or you're thinking about getting started, we want to let you know about a great resource for sports bettors, the Action Network. The Action Network is where sports fans go to bet smarter and experience real financial gains. In fact, their Action Network app was recently named the best app in sports betting. And with an Action Network Pro subscription, you can unlock the very best of the app. When you sign up for an Action Network Pro subscription, one, you can access the Pro Report, which includes expert projections for every game. Two, you can see money and bet percentages on every game, so you can see the teams professional gamblers are betting on. Three, you can take advantage of Pro Systems, which match winning historical betting trends with the latest games and lines. And four, you can track every bet you make and get alerts in real time. So if you're looking to bet smarter, an Action Network Pro subscription is the best way to get started. And for a limited time, our listeners can receive 50% off an annual Pro subscription. Just go to actionnetwork.com now and receive 50% off an annual subscription when you use the promo code NOX. This offer won't last, so go to actionnetwork.com to sign up for a Pro subscription and use promo code NOX, K-N-O-C-K-S, to receive 50% off. And start betting smarter today. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Next question comes from Spring Green 445. Rank these players based on how valuable they'd be to contenders at the trade deadline. Derek Rose, George Hill, PJ Tucker. I, I think I've, as much as he struggled this season, I think PJ Tucker is number one on that list just because of the malleability. You know that you can play him at a number of different positions. You know that he's going to be this gritty, hard-nosed physical defender who can work in a wide variety of schemes. You know that his corner three-pointer is going to come around eventually. So that the ability to fill multiple buckets at a high level is important to any contender. I think I would have Derek Rose second just because of the shot creation ability. I, I think that there is value in having that that spark scorer off the bench. And as good a shooter, especially from three-point range as George Hill is, he just feels like more of a complimentary player than that bona fide difference maker off the bench that you can have in Rose. Like if if you free Rose to be what he wants to be for 20, 25 minutes per game, he's going to be explosive. He's going to score. He's going to score efficiently. He's going to set up teammates. And I think what Hill does well, he does well better, but it's more limited. So Derek Rose would be the bottom one for me because availability matters. He's shooting and he's been begged up this year too. He's shooting 49% at the rim and remains a non-threat from beyond the arc. The shot creation is certainly important and he is shooting 46% from mid-range this year, but I don't know that you can count on him. And he feels more eminently guardable in the playoffs just as this smaller guard that you can really overpower if you need to. I think I would put George Hill second. The shooting is just amazing and we know that he tends to be even more locked in when he's on a contender the defense for someone who's going to defend a backcourt spot i don't know that he's going to come out on top a majority of the nights but it's stout and the fact that you can throw him on point guards like that's just that those are impossible assignments mostly so that's good and you there's like some secondary playmaking there and i think it's tucker for me just because he changes the game defensively do you want him to defend fours or fives and threes he'll do it the fact that he's so old is probably maybe a red flag, but he'll shoot a zillion percent on quarter threes. There's a, the more I'm talking, I, I might want to consider Hill first just to get more of someone who can operate off the dribble. And he's going to give you more above the break three point shooting than PJ Tucker. So I think I'm going to say George Hill, PJ Tucker, Derek Rose. I do think of all of them, PJ Tucker is probably going to be the cheapest to get just when you look at Derek Rose, the Pistons kind of need him with Killian Hayes out. They only have DeLon Wright and, uh, Who's the other guy that's been playing for them? Uh, Saban, right? What was his name? Uh, Saban Lee, excuse Saban me. Saban Lee, yeah. So they, they kind of need him even though they're bad. And then Tucker just – if he's going to leave this summer from the Rockets. So you might as well get you know two seconds or him or whatever it is. And then George Hill, I guess he's really indispensable to the Thunder. But if they really wanted to, they could guarantee a salary for next year and he's still kind of an appealing trade option. So they don't necessarily have to move him now and he's so plug and play. He doesn't impede anything that they're trying to do there. If anything, he's probably hurting them by, by helping them win. I will say shout out to the person who asked this question because it's, it's very easy to throw out a list of names and ask for them to be ranked and not have them be closely grouped together. But it feels like there's no objectively correct answer to this trio and it might just totally depend on the situation for the team that would be trying to trade for them. Do you know who might've like thrown this for like an even harder worlds? If Lou Williams was included, maybe instead of Derek Rose might've been mm -hmm. harder separation. Yeah, probably so. But still, it was a great question. Oh, it was a fantastic question. And Lou Williams is, you know, he's, he's very questionable when you get to the playoffs and the foul baiting doesn't work. Who's the best team in the Western conference and why is it Utah asks Jeff. I will preface this by saying it's not Utah. Yeah, it's it's not Utah. It's the two L.A. teams. Uh, the Clippers offense just looks so deadly with Paul George back in MVP caliber form they, um, and Kawhi Leonard healthy and available. And I'm sorry and, to interject, but they just don't even need to put pressure on the rib. And they're just like a fantastic right. offense. It's crazy. It, it feels like we have a predestined battle for L.A. in the Western Conference Finals this year. Like the, those are the two clear cut best teams to me. But I, I think you at this point, like as hot as the jazz are right now. And, and granted we say that as 
I guess since we started recording, they have pulled away from the Pelicans. Um, that's yeah, not hard I to do, though, they, these days. Just enough. It is not hard to do these days, especially in the third quarter. I feel like the Pelicans have – that's been their bugaboo lately. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think you can make a case that the Jazz might be the third best team in the West. Um, I'm not sure that they're a lock for that spot, but Gobert looks locked in on defense. Mike Conley has been the Mike Conley that they expected to get when they acquired him from the Memphis Grizzlies. The the supporting pieces are working, and this is happening even as Donovan Mitchell hasn't been the version of Donovan Mitchell that we saw in the bubble and in that first-round playoff series, or first- or second-round playoff series against the Denver Nuggets. Um, like th- This team, it's deep and, and talented on both ends, and I, I could very much see it cementing itself as as the number three squad in the West. I know it's cliche to go with the volume score for six men of the year too, but if Toronto ends up starting Chris Boucher, Jordan Clarkson might be the favorite for six men of the year. I mean, he's shooting like I think 58% or just something outlandish from two in addition to 42.9% from three averaging over 17 points per game. They're, their defense is now third in points allowed per possession. Rudy Gay just continues to anchor the the hell out of that. Uh, fun Rudy – oh, Rudy Gobert. I am sorry. Fun Rudy Gobert stat. He leads the league in blocks from short mid-range. This isn't just him inside mm. of three feet camping out. Um, he leads the league in blocks between four and 14 feet. I'd love to see the average distance of that because I do feel someone like Joel Embiid is going to play up on the pick and roll more than he does. Uh, but that's still just incredibly impressive. Here's I'll play this quick game with you. Utah or Phoenix? Utah right now, but I think Phoenix does have enough upside to change that. It, they feel like a team, and we have questions for them, so we'll get them like they feel like a team that might peak when it matters most. This is where things are gonna get interesting. Utah or Dallas? Right now it's unquestionably well, Utah. I mean, for the rest of the season, Utah or Dallas? I haven't seen enough from the Dallas supporting cast to have confidence in the Mavs rising up to that same height. I mean, granted, they're just now incorporating Christoph Porzingis, but Tim Hardaway Jr. has been hot and cold. Maxi Kleba might be their like third best player most nights right now. Like the the depth just hasn't been there. Utah or Golden State? Oh, Utah easily. And I think this one's going to be harder. Utah or Denver? That's the one I'm not sure about because Nikola Jokic has just been on an absolute heater all season long, but. Everyone around him has struggled, and we haven't really seen what the team can accomplish with Michael Porter Jr. available, with Jamal Murray playing with any semblance of confidence, um, and that especially matters as as they continue to incorporate Jamichael Green into the rotation. That that feels like the team that that could enter that same tier, but I feel more confident in Utah at this point because it's kind of like the realization of what I expected last year. But it was deferred because of the Boyan Bogdanovich injury in the playoffs and because of Mike Conley's struggles to get acclimated in, in his new role. So it feels like an extension of the confidence I had in them going into last season, just finally manifesting this time around. The Utah-Denver one's the big one. I, I think I would take Phoenix over Utah. Just I, They might need a move, though. Utah feels like it's finished, and that might be okay. And they might be a just a top-four team in the West at this point, which – relative to the West after the two LA teams is a big deal if you can pencil them in as one because I don't know that I would pencil another team in there right now, even if I like Phoenix better. I don't like Dallas better. I'd pick Utah there. I think I agree with you in Utah and Golden State. They they need another Golden State needs another move before that. Denver's the tough one. Nicole Jokic is here. I don't want to say it's being wasted, but they're below five hundred and he's averaging a triple double. And the fun stat that I found, it it hit the cutting room floor on a piece that I just wrote. Nikola Jokic is shooting 14 of 20 on floaters. That is 70% on floaters this season, folks. I think that's pretty good. Is that good? It might be good. I think that he monstered Trey Young. Dude, remember when I mentioned on our first podcast of the regular season that Trey Young probably deserves some MVP love? That take I do, is, and I push back on it. That take is aged a little poorly. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Hopefully he turns it around. My my one other uh, my one other jazz anecdote. Uh, as you mentioned, Jordan Clarkson, I was just thinking like, you know, he he struggled a lot early in his career, and then he got the big neck tattoo, and it just turned around. So just advice for all our listeners is to go out and get neck tattoos, and you'll be much better at basketball. So I screwed up. I got tattoos like I flirted with the neck, but it was too much of a coward. The chest, the shoulder, the ribs, the arm, but could never get to the neck. So I was a coward, and I need to get my neck tattooed. Is what you're saying. That's why you can't shoot. 
I do have a lefty hook though, but no, I can't shoot, and my lefty hook falls like twenty eight percent of the time. So look, I, I'm not making the rules. This is just science. This question is for you and only you, and it, <laughs> it comes from Mud. How good would Wilt Chamberlain be in today's NBA if you plucked him from 1962 and gave him an offseason to learn the new rules, use modern trading, and practice with the team, etc.? By the way, in parentheticals, I think this is how we should frame talk about any player from history, how any player from history would fare today. I, I totally agree with that latter point. Cross-era comparisons are so tough, and it requires – I don't know that it's pointless to make them, but it does work, require a level of nuance that I will say people or outlets aren't necessarily willing to commit to. So I have not properly prepared for this question, and I apologize if I kind of like lose my train of thought here. But first with the the cross-era comparisons, I do agree that that's how we should evaluate players when we're we're thinking about like how they would perform today because the the training, the medical technology, and, and all of that is just so vastly different. And it, it would be unfair to expect any player to be plucked from an earlier era of NBA basketball and and immediately be put into this ridiculously different league with the the three-pointer, I mean, which didn't even exist at that point in league history. Um, when I when I talk about player rankings historically and all that, though, I, that's not really what I'm doing so much as comparing how a player stacked up relative to his peers in that era. That's generally my preferred way of talking about, you know, how Elgin Baylor or George Mikan might rank in a set of historical rankings, just because that's such an impossible task to think about how everyone would have translated. Now, the the first part of this question, which I think is the most interesting part of it, um, I, I think very few players from the 1960s, especially the early 1960s, would be valuable commodities in today's league. But Wilt would be the exception. I mean, he he is one of the most overpowering physical athletes that the game has ever seen, regardless of generation. He was you know, an Olympic caliber track athlete. He lifted weights with Arnold Schwarzenegger and kept up. Um, he was a capable three-point shooter, as we've seen in in videos of him just messing around and and taking long-range shots. He had enough skill to lead the league and assist one season when he decided, albeit selfishly, that he wanted to prove that he could do that. I think that he could 100% hold up if we gave him the advantage of the training and the medical technology that that we've gained throughout the years. So I, I feel like if you take prime wilt and and just give him all of those benefits let him acclimate and then unleash him we're talking about the best center in the nba right away i don't know that i would disagree with any of that and there's i think as you you know journey later into the future where we're talking about 80s and 90s players specifically and if we do we need to go back to the 2000s at this point that was kind of a while ago if you did the same for most of the best players in those eras i don't know that the answer would necessarily be any different. The Michael Jordan could dominate in today's game. I think it's it's a select group, though. You know, there are guys like Larry Bird would be better today, as dominant as he was. Someone like Elgin Baylor would thrive today. Would, would Larry Bird be better? I think so, because he would be even more fully unleashed as a shooter and as a passer. I mean, as, as much as he did, like, he, he led the league in three-pointers relatively early in his career by making something like 86 or something like that. I could pull up the exact numbers just to verify that. But yeah, I mean, like he was such a ridiculously accurate and versatile shooter and it didn't matter. So yeah, he led, he led the league in 1985, 86 with 82 threes. And then again, the next year with 90, you know, and, and if you put him in a system that is going to maximize that ability, as we've seen from so many big men, like think about all the big men we see in today's game who, because they're great passers, they're able to be fully unleashed. And I, I think that's what you're looking at with Larry Bird, where you you get a system that actually caters to its talent instead of like, you know, as good as he was and as valuable as that skill was, it was kind of a novelty in a lot of respects. Like if you maximize that ridiculous all-around ability that he had, I think he'd be even better today. But yeah, I mean, it, it just it doesn't work for everyone. Like if you go in the early 2000s, you're, you're looking at these dominant players like Ben Wallace, for example. Like, does he get the Roy Hibbert treatment today? Could I mean, as even Dwight great, Howard? Think about Pete as Dwight. great a defender as he was. You know, we, there are there are plenty of testaments from coaches and players saying that Ben Wallace is the best defender they've ever seen. Could he hold up? I, I don't know. No, it's it's hard, but I think Wilt is just he's such an anomaly, 
just everything we know, everything we've read, everything we've watched, the the all-encompassing physical talent that he had, it's it's just unmatched. If you're making a list of the greatest athletic superstars in NBA history, it's it's him and LeBron at the top. I'm going to keep going with the questions that are for you and only for you in my book. Um, Mark, Mark Yanovsky, and I hope I pronounced that right because I asked you how to pronounce it, asks, what do you think the most undervalued basketball metric is? Also, what is most overvalued? Uh, I think that it's a tough question because I think that most any stat, when used properly, has value. You know, context is always going to be necessary, but some are are just inherently better than others. So I think the go-to example of the overrated stat or the overused stat is probably PER, player efficiency rating, the the one that John Hollinger created. And it's just, it's a little outdated. It it, it, It gives more value to volume shooters. It doesn't really incorporate defense. Um, and, and in general, there's just not much of a use for it today, even if it was valuable and groundbreaking at the time that it was first um, first conceived of. Uh, I, I also don't really like generic use of points per game, of field goal percentage, just those those basic stats where you know we obviously have better versions of them. There's really no reason to be citing field goal percentage when you can look at effective field goal percentage or true shooting percentage, which are just more telling forms of the same kind of stat. Um, and, and along those lines, I wish that we could change the, the, the triple slash line, which tends to be field goal percentage, three-point percentage, free throw percentage, you know, the 50-40-90 club, um, and look instead at two-point percentage, three-point percentage, free throw percentage. I, th- I just think that would be more telling than double counting the threes without accounting for the volume uh, that they factor into. As for, as for the underrated ones, um, you know, the, the, the all-in-one metrics are tough just because there's so much that happens that can't fully be captured. So like the the stat we use at NBA Math, TPA, total points added, it's box score derived. Um, I, I always advocate that it be used as nothing more as a baseline, especially on the defensive end, because so much context is necessary. Hashtag but rebounds. People have hashtag rebounds. Yeah, I mean, they, they do drastically impact the defensive part of that stat. And uh, because it's measured against an average player rather than a replacement level player, if somebody is slightly below average and playing a lot of minutes, they're going to look really negative, which tends to make them look worse than they should. Um, Some people have managed to create variants of all-encompassing stats that do take more factors into account and tend to give a slightly more accurate picture. So I I think the shout-out here should go to B-Ball Index's uh, PIPM metrics. Those tend to be really accurate. They put a lot of time and love into crafting them. They look good historically. They look good currently. Um, I'm not entirely familiar with all the -the behind-the-scenes calculations, but they they do tend to pass the eye test better than uh, TPA does better than 538's Raptor does better than ESPN's RPM does. So shout out to that one. I like, and I know because I've looked at, and it's calculated differently depending on who does it, but I've looked at the formula and it's way over my head, even when trying to read the descriptions. Um, but regularized adjusted plus minus RAPM, um, mm-hmm. it's a mouthful, but that one I find helpful. And I think because they're, um, you know, at NBAShotCharts.com, they allow you to look at three-year and five-year RAPM, so it provides sort of a more complete snapshot. And they also do luck adjustments. They, um, you know, weight these against like Bayesian averages, and so that's that's just one of my favorites to go in there. If I butchered the pronunciation there, it's whatever. But that's what I Bayesian. use. Bayesian, whatever. Um, that's what I use to like calculate lineup data last year, and so stuff like that. But you're right. There's no perfect metric out there and the kitchen sink ones i think are probably the most dangerous because uh people try to use them as end-all be-alls and i do think that in some instances yeah you know that nicole Jokic is ranking in like the top 10 of every single advanced metric yeah that starts to matter but you're gonna see these things that just stand out i mean espn's rpm i think that's where it's like easiest to spot the anomalies with per you can see how volume based it is even with bpm and uh TPA, it does reward guys. Those metrics feel like they reward guys who get a bunch of rebounds. So there's they do. there's limits to all of them. And so that's why I think – and when people, one, ask me to come on podcasts and talk about the importance of numbers, they should probably find someone more qualified. But I try to do every single podcast appearance that I'm asked about. But two, I think that's why it's important just to blend everything, the simplistic stats, the kitchen sink stats, and then, of course, watching basketball. But people who use numbers don't watch basketball, obviously. Never. 
Never. This yeah, is... I mean, I, I think specifically with regards to TPA, just because it's the one we use at NBA Math, which is the host of this podcast, um, it's not the best metric out there. It's not perfect. You're a terrible uh, salesman. I'm, I'm not trying to be I a haven't salesman. prepared I'm for this podcast. I haven't prepared for this question. <laughs> My stat that I formulated is flawed. <laughs> no, I mean, the reason that we use it is because it's easy to break it down into the offensive and defensive components. It's easy to scale for volume, which allows us to create the graphics. The graphics are more interesting than the number itself. And, you know, if you think that player A who has a slightly worse score than player B is better, good. Like these aren't supposed to be foolproof, perfect metrics. They're supposed to inform your thinking and then you, you can build your opinions from there. I'm I'm totally with you on that. We have another question for you and only you in my book, even though I nudged it on this one. Speaking of TPA, Austin Woods asks, do you think Heroes T- Tyler Hero's TPA being so poor this year is because of the high usage rate, because of players missing time for COVID and the short offseason, or is there a reason to be actually concerned about him? Uh, I'll sit right on the fence on this one, which is where I tend to find myself a lot on these questions. Um, yeah, I mean, his score looks worse because he's shooting more with sub-ideal efficiency levels. I mean, he's shooting 30.2% from three-point range. He doesn't get to the foul line uh, as much as he needs to. So that, in a, in a stat that is measuring against average level of play, as he continues to rack up more and more usage, is going to make him look worse and worse. Why is that the case? Probably because the heat situation is not ideal. They're they're tasking him with too many point guard responsibilities. They're overextending him out of necessity because this Heat team as a whole has largely struggled. He's one of the pieces with upside, and he's been asked to do too much. I mean, I I don't know that you need to have long-term concern about him as a valuable member of a championship-caliber team. If you thought that he was going to be an absolute superstar, maybe have a little bit of concern about that because he does just appear a little overextended. Look, this also might just be part of the the growing process because he's gone from you know last year when when he was a rookie, uh, he logged just nineteen percent of his minutes at point guard. This year, forty two percent of his possessions, excuse me, are coming at at point guard, and so the the shot profile is going to change there. Um, and you're right, he has just not been efficient. Maybe these reps though end up helping him out in in the future and kind of going through this pain now that will be what turns him into the next Devin Booker. I don't see it. And so if that's how you're trying to view him, or more if you're hoping that he lands the the Heat Bradley Beal, I just don't know that he has that kind of appeal. At the same time, you know, going through the turnovers, his decision-making out of double teams, the getting tunnel vision still in pra- in traffic, That that's part of this. And so I wouldn't be concerned just yet, but it is – this might be by the end of the season. I don't want to say it's a reality check, but that might be when we need to recalibrate uh, expectations for him because I think right now he's viewed as like maybe this superstar uh, hidden in the rough that the Heat found, you know, late, you know, mid first round. What was he? Thirteenth overall, twelfth overall. He was somewhere over there. He was as I double check this for accuracy. Drafted thirteenth, so I was right the first time. Uh, that will be the monitor. Trust those instincts. But yeah, look, he's he's just assuming a different role right now, and I do think that the Heat were one shot creator short last year and they decided that it's going to be him and we'll see if it's going to be him. I think that's the best way to look at it. There's actually one more question technically for you from uh, Miroslav Shuk. Why did you make the TPA so former Yugoslav friendly? Why wouldn't I? All right, moving on. Uh, (laughs) This comes from... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Jokic is in the banner of NBA math for a reason. Is he like... Who are who are like the the TPA Mount Rushmore people? Is it Russell Westbrook, Nikola Jokic, and like who else is breaking TPA? So I, Russell Westbrook broke TPA and really broke box plus minus to the extent that Basketball Reference he broke triple doubles it. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like to the point that Basketball Reference reformatted BPM into BPM two So I think like he's in a different category because Jokic is just really fucking good. Like that, and that's not to say Westbrook wasn't, but his stats were like perfectly designed to break the system. Jokic is just a masterful basketball player who I, I don't think he he's quite like getting those cheap rebounds that that 
mess with everything. You know what I mean? Like that's not to insult he's what not Russell grabbing Westbrook them. did during his MVP caliber season. Um, it's it's not to overly compliment what Jokic is doing now. It just the the ways in which they accrued those system breaking numbers feel a little bit different. I, I'm gonna have to think more about who's on that uh, that Mount Rushmore because I don't know that I want to put Westbrook on it as a guy who broke it. I, I like that Jokic is on it because he's just that good. So it's Chris Boucher, Jokic. Yeah, I mean, shout out to Chris Boucher, who's number seven in TPA league wide as we're recording this. Uh, funny story, I was on another podcast a day ago, and I'm happy to report that the the Boucher brand is strong because they asked me a question, but they qualify. I can't remember the question was, but they qualified it by by you can't pick Boucher because we know how you feel about Boucher, and so I'm happy that the the Chris Boucher brand is strong on this podcast. I'm going to butcher the shit out of this pronunciation, and I apologize. But this question comes from Sahar Abdelkadir. I hope that's at least a quarter close. Has Zach Levine taken the leap? I'll let you take this one first because there have been a lot geared towards me. Yeah, so look, it's funny because when you look at Zach Levine's numbers, yeah, he's averaging a career high in 27.4 at 27.4 points per game, but he was at 23.7 two years ago, 25.5 last year. That's not a stark difference. You look at some of the shots that he's taking, and those haven't necessarily changed. His efficiency is way up. 64 true shooting is huge for him. Getting to the foul line at a career-high attempt rate right now, um, that is in at least slight part to the fact – and that's that's in spite, excuse me, of him getting to the rim less compared to, to last year. So he is drawing more shooting fouls there. What I think has most impressed me about him, and it's not going to be the three-point efficiency, he's still hitting a really high clip of his long twos, which remain a smaller part of his diet. That's good. Still, I'd question whether he's going to shoot you know, 47-4 in between 10 and 16 feet when his, his previous career high from that distance was 38.1%. Those are things to look at. What I think is encouraging is, and it's not the defense to me, they're putting him on really tough assignments, and he's still just getting roasted i guess it's more valuable though that they're putting him on tough assignments and that's happening so i'll say he's slightly more valuable on defense just from what i've i've seen of the bulls this year who were not a pleasant watch at the beginning of the year i I checked out on them for so long they were excruciating they've really picked it up as late of late zach levine as a passer is real right now he's never been more uh, efficient as a pick and roll ball handler and while i was researching this question uh, this was the number that was mind-blowing to me so last year Zach Levine made 39.4 passes per game. Those translated to 8.5 assists. This year, he's making 40.6 passes per game, so roughly a pass per game more, and he's at 11.1 potential assists. He's just making smarter passes, looking to pass even more frequently. They're they're more meaningful because they're translating to actual shots. And that's that's even reflected in his shot total. So Zach Levine, yeah, he's traded in some of his other attempts for long-range looks, and that's helped buoy his scoring a little bit since he's always been a great catch-and-shoot. And and not always, but in recent years, he's been a pretty good off-the-dribble three-point shooter. His shot attempts are down. Uh, he's he sacrificed about a shot and a half per game. So this version of Zach Levine, I still don't want him as the engine of an offense, but now I would say where we looked at him and said, well, maybe he's better as like this clear-cut number two, perhaps number three. This might be someone who can be the, the the number two on a title team, just and be even more sure of that than ever. And look, he's this is age twenty five season. I won't rule out that this is the beginning of something either. He turns twenty six in March, so I don't know that he's going to be like this top twenty five player all of a sudden. But the passing changes things exponentially for him. So I will say he has made the leap, and that leap is not necessarily statistical even though again 5.3 assists is a career high it's functional it's just more meaningful and that's to say he's made the leap into being a more well-rounded complete player i think that that passes to a assist stat is kind of a microcosm for this season in general for him where he's not necessarily doing more so much as doing more things with a purpose whether it's as a playmaker or a defender or a scorer, it seems like there's just there's more 
purpose to everything that he's doing on the court. He's not relying on instincts and athleticism so much as a fundamental understanding of what is the right play to make in each and every situation. And we're getting to see like the full realization of this dizzying talent that he's always had. He's gotten incrementally better year after year for quite a while now. And it does... I don't. I don't want to say that he's made the leap this year because I think it's been a leap in progress. So much as made that final step forward into like legitimate stardom. I, I think as a 25 year old, like he could very well be a part of Chicago's long term core. He's not too old to be considered a centerpiece of the ongoing rebuild. For sure. And look, that contract is it was criticized when the Kings gave it to him. The the Bulls were I mean, the Kings deserved to be trolled at that point. Probably um, there were questions about the Bulls matching it. It's turned into a friggin' steal. That's the, you know, we talk about Bradley Beal and maybe Zach Levine is the next guy to get moved because the offers are just so good. He has one year at 19.5 left on his contract after this. He's not going to get the same haul, but I feel like if Chicago wanted to, they could get a ton for him because he seems like he's not an even better fit than Bradley Beal for a contender, but theoretically he's more gettable, should come cheaper and he's younger. And so maybe that makes him more tantalizing. And the other two things quick on him the turnovers have gone up, but just given what he's done with his role, I'm okay with that. And so you would expect those, if he's going to continue to progress, those will get better. And just sort of another sign of his decision-making improving, 21.3% of his shots are coming at the rim. That's a career low. He's still averaging a career high in free throw attempts per 36 minutes at 6.3. He's still not the guy to go out there and get to the line a ton, but that just shows that he's being smarter with what he's doing because he's able to draw these fouls despite not getting to the basket at this ridiculously high clip. Yeah. I think if he, if he's made a leap this season, it's the leap from being a athlete playing basketball to a basketball player. Who's a ridiculous athlete. And the other way to contextualize it too, and having done player rankings for like the past six years straight, and I think you were with me for three of those years probably at least before you moved over. I've been with you for all of them. Come on now. Well, when, when you were actually useful, for when you were writing. That's that's yeah. fair. So when you get to a certain point in player rankings, like maybe like after top 35 or something, everything is so interchangeable, it feels like. And now he sort of feels in that territory where it's you can't put him like in top 50, like be 50th and that being not be insulting. Where it's like he's sort of in that tier where the separation matters now because of how much better or smarter he is playing. Side note, but I wish that all the people who read power read, read player rankings and then complained that like it feels like names were drawn out of a hat, like got to see the behind the scenes process of those and just like how much time and energy is spent like determining sixty six versus sixty seven. Yeah, that it, it's agonizing. It is agonizing, and it's everyone says it's clickbait, and I guess the concept is. But the work that goes into it is not. No one sets out. I've always enjoyed doing those. Yeah, yeah, and once or twice. I don't want to overdo them, but I I find them to be just very informative and Mm. as exhausting as they are, they're they're rewarding. I'll ask you a question before the final two. Well, technically three questions. Would you like to finish with the Suns or finish with Jeremy Grant? Um. Well, let's finish as always with a shout out, which I would like to do this episode. Okay. Uh, but in terms of in terms of the questions, um, let's finish with the Suns. All right, so that means we are going to talk about Jeremy Grant and Pascal Siakam because Adam Bushman and I thought this was a fascinating question. By the way, how much has the gap between Jeremy Grant and Pascal Siakam narrowed since the start of the season? He also adds, "I'm still in the camp of Siakam is greater than Grant, but it's no longer superstar versus role player like everyone thought last year." Right. Is is there a gap right now? Like <laughs> so mean. Is it is it mean to is it mean to Siakam or is it a compliment to Jeremy Grant who's just been incredible for the Pistons? Yeah, I, look, it's it's definitely a compliment. I, that's a legitimate question. I'm not trying to be like funny or anything with that. Like, I'm not sure there's a gap right now. Yeah, I mean, it's tough with Siakam because that Celtic series, and I know people talk about how his efficiency declined as the year went on last year, but that Celtic series really did seem to break him. And he's played a little bit better lately, but not a ton. I would still say, I'd still take Siakam long-term because I think he's going to give you more positionally on defense long-term. I do ultimately think he's the better passer if you're looking at someone to make decisions in transition, um, if you can just get him going downhill. But Jeremy Grant, and look, I just wrote about this. Jeremy Grant is my most improved player right now, and it's 
it's twofold because when you look at most improved player, I do think it's fair to just look at the numbers. And so he's averaging a career high 24.9 points, which are 11.3 more than his previous career high. It's coming on similar efficiency too. He had a 59-1 true shooting in Denver last year. He has 59-1 true shooting in Detroit this year. And that roster is significantly less talented than the one he just played on. Looking at the functionality of how he's getting those points though, it is night and day to how he's ever been used. And I'm about to throw a ton of numbers at you. So listeners, please stick stick with me here. Pull-up jumpers never accounted for more than 12.3 of his shots prior to this season. They make up roughly 25% of his looks now. That's So that's double his previous career high. And he only really had, I think, two seasons before this where pull-up jumpers accounted for 10% of his field goal attempts. A career-high 31.9% of his buckets are coming unassisted. His previous watermark was 27.1%, and that was back in 2015-2016 when he was still with, I think that was the Oklahoma City Thunder and not the, he wasn't still with the Sixers at that point, was he? I'll check that really quick. So, like, you're going really far back there. He was with Philly. So we're talking Philadelphia days when that roster just didn't have anybody. in They won 10 games. That's why Jeremy Grant was taking pull-up jumpers. They won 10 games that year. And... Uh, the the other thing to really note here too, he's he has already set and keep in, bear in mind that he has played thirteen games as we record this this season. He has already set a career high for the number of pick and roll possessions he's finished as the ball handler. I will note that he has been terribly inefficient in these situations. He's averaging 0.71 points per possession as the pick and roll ball handler, uh, not getting to the line. That's the 21st percentile of efficiency, but he's not turning the ball over either. So there's, there's that. This is just a completely different role he's assuming. And I think that gets lost where, no, these awards, they don't have concrete criteria. We don't need to take them literal, but improvement isn't just, oh, this guy's the same player, but more volume, where I think you could have said that with, Bam Adebayo last year, not fully. Maybe you could, you could say that with Chris, Chris Boucher this year. I really think you probably can. Uh, he's doing more stuff inside the arc and on defense than I think people thought he was capable of, but still. Jeremy Grant is really, while he's turning 27 in March, so he's older than the typical most improved guy, I think the last one to be that old, um, be over the age of 25, was Goran Dragic, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to double-check that. That sounds right. But still, he's... This is just a different player from what he's doing. And the fact that his volume hasn't just resulted in, I think it's fair to say that volume results in like glitzier numbers with crappier efficiency. He's gotten glitzier numbers on identical efficiency in a harder role. That's really tough to do. And so if the season ended right now, I think people, I don't think he would be necessarily the the surefire pick for for most improved because people they want to look at teams that are like kind of good and you want to try and suss out the next all-star like the next big thing i don't know that he's viewed in those terms and the pistons have the league's worst record they spent a ton of time in in, in the clutch though so i think that matters that they've been close in a, in a bunch of their games but still just from what he was only last season to what he is now it's it's really astounding to me and look i'll eat i'll eat crow here i didn't necessarily think that the Pistons were dumb to pay the money that they did for the Jeremy Grant that was in Denver last season. I thought Jeremy Grant was dumb for turning down the same money from Denver to go to Detroit for a more expanded role that I did not think he was suited for. I was wrong. He would have to go completely off the rails for me to be right. And that was a that was just a terrible take by me, and I'm sure it was shared by many others. So, I so both things. Yeah, so I, it's even worse for me. Well, then look, kudos to him. I just think that he's... He probably should be the consensus most improved player. I don't think he will be, but he 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 should. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, there's not much I can add there other than Jeremy Grant's really good now. Well, not that he wasn't really good before. It's just that Jeremy Grant... No, can, he wasn't really good before. He, he could do things with the ball in his hands. Yeah. Yeah. So, and look, if he starts, like, getting to the foul line a ton or running pick and rolls efficiently, uh, it'll change everything I think that I know about player trajectories. I can say that. We have two questions to wrap up with the Suns. So I will start. Let's start with the Aiton question, which comes from a friend of the podcast, Ben Leibowitz. Is DeAndre Aiton as inconsistent by advanced stats as he seems to be by the eye test? Look super engaged on both ends against Memphis, which Phoenix, that was a game Phoenix lost, but that hasn't been the norm game to game. Um, I don't know if you've looked at the advanced metrics, but they, if, 
they do line up with what Ben Leibovitz Yeah, is I mean, they've been far worse with him on the court. Like, his numbers vacillate greatly from night to night. And I think it's just it's a tough adjustment to playing with both Chris Paul and Devin Booker. The ball is in his, in his hands as much. They're not getting it to him on the post and asking him to shoot um, at least on a consistent basis as he's used to. And it's definitely bleeding into the overall aggression within his game. Like he's, he's been disappointing this season because he could have been so much more and he still could be, but he's, he's taken a back seat and, and proved that he might not be quite as, as vital to this franchise as we initially thought that he was going to be. It's not to say that he's not really good. There, there are games like that Memphis game where he looks like he can still be a superstar and that, the Suns might be better off treating him like that, but it's just, it's going to be more of a gradual acclimation process than we expected. And yeah, I, I think there's, I would argue that he's probably been more valuable on defense than offense this year, if only because I would agree. he's just, you're able to predict his performance better. The actual post-ups aren't down a ton from last year. He's at 5.4 per game compared to 6.2 last year, but he's still getting just in general about 10 fewer front court touches per game. That's substantial because it represents like, you know, 17, 15% of what his touches were last year. And so that that's that's up there. The other thing that he really needs to do, and it's been kind of a career-long struggle, is he needs to get to the line more. And about 37% of his field goal attempts are coming inside three feet. That's down roughly 9% from last year. He needs to roll harder and more frequently. If you watch him, uh, I didn't see the Memphis game, but in previous games, it feels like he's almost he's either at a standstill after setting a screen or he's like kind of wandering off to the side. And I don't know what's happening there because you're playing with two guys and Booker and, and Paul who you should want to roll for because they will will find you. And look, the inconsistency, this isn't advanced stats, but it's real in the sense that he goes from tallying consecutive 20 plus point performances to start the year in January than to barely getting up 10 shots per night over the next two weeks before going off against Memphis in a game that Phoenix lost. And I will point out, it's not just him going through the motions. Phoenix's defense, after starting hot, has kind of fallen off. The They already made a starting lineup change because the, the eight and Crowder Bridges Booker lineup, which just makes so much sense on paper, is getting annihilated, giving up 121 points for 100 possessions. They inserted Cam Johnson in there against Memphis. Surprise, surprise, that didn't help. Um, the defense was fine in that game, but the offense was was terrible. I think this is just going to take a little while to figure out. And as I mentioned before, it's the team that you look at and say, hey, let's fast forward to the playoffs. That might be when they're playing at their peak because they did undergo this change and they didn't have much of a training camp with which to work through it. Right. And I, I think Aiden, th- th- this isn't as surprising as it might initially seem with Aiden just because we're talking about a 6'11", 250-pound, absolutely built big man who has never played with the aggression that that body and playing style should necessitate. Like he's always been hesitant to just go up and dunk on someone. He prefers to lay it in. He doesn't like to assert himself physically down low. He prefers to play with a little bit of finesse. And like we've seen flashes of that changing, just not quickly enough. So it's not really surprising to me that if anyone was going to take a back seat and like have to go through this adjustment, that it was going to be him. I didn't see it before the season started, but I'm not surprised now that it's actually happening, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think we all could agree that he, maybe it seems like he would turn a corner this year, but then you trade it for Chris Paul and that just changes the, it might be as simple as that changes the dynamic. His usage, yeah. as we already mentioned, has, has plummeted. I think part of that is is on him, again, just because of what you look at when he's doing without the ball. Still, Maybe he'll figure it out, but that does lead me into this our final question, and this comes from Forcemaster76. Are there any more trades you'd like to see the Suns make to establish themselves as a title contender? I'll throw it to you first because I believe that we disagree on this. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't like to see them make any more trades just because I believe in the upside of this roster. I think that there's so much talent scattered throughout the rotation. I think that they have the top end stars and I, I don't know that coming off the expedited off season and the tough adjustment period with Chris Paul, that you want to make another shake it up trade. Um, if you're going to do something around the periphery, fine. But if you're altering this score, then you're just making it harder for this group to achieve the success that it needs to pretty quickly because Chris Paul isn't going to be Chris Paul forever. 
now I'll throw it to you because I'm sure that you have some trade scenarios. So not that I know that I have exact scenarios, but I do think that based on what we've seen from Aiton, that this might not be the best fit for him. And so I'd be more willing to move him. What is the market? Then there though, because you're not moving him for the sake of moving him where you want to go completely hodgepodge here. Let's say the return is this is and I'm this isn't one that I would support. I'm just saying if you're figuring out how to make it work with other salaries and you're getting Aaron Gordon and Terrence Ross, are you giving up Aiton in that trade? I don't think you want to. It probably has no. to be for a star or somebody very close to an all-star. If I'm Phoenix, and this is the move that I'm spotting right now, is just go out and do it. Can you get Bradley Beal with using Aiton as the centerpiece? Because See, I, 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 I figured did, did, you would go there, but like, do you want him? Yes, one because he's played better defense this year, and now you have a bridge into the the post Chris Paul era with someone who aligns perfectly with Devin Booker's window, and they can play just off each other so well. And I think what also but help, DeAndre Aiton also aligns with Devin Booker's window. He does. Like that's the thing, and when Paul isn't there, like you're expecting him to take a bigger role. Booker yes, but, and Beal are just like such similar offensive players. Yes, but the ecosystem changes when Chris Paul leaves. And so then you're asking if DeAndre Ayton hasn't shown that he can thrive with Chris Paul, and you're going to ask him to make that change again. And it's not like he's been playing super well when Chris when he's only with one of Devin Booker or Chris Paul because they stagger those, those minutes for those two guys a ton, which Monty Williams I think has done well because their backup point guard situation is weird. Um, does campaign playing so well at points this season? Does that factor into it at all? I don't know. What I think also happens there is – Washington's like one of the very few spots where it's like, yeah, they could use a big to build around. Thomas Bryant was good this year before he got injured, but he's not the guy moving forward. They have Denny Avia, and uh, he's going to be on the wings with Rui Hachimura. He's probably going to be a four. Davis Bertans is, they should probably look at moving him if they're rebuilding. So the other thing I thought about, um, and this one doesn't really work anymore, but when I wanted James Harden to go to Toronto, I was like, if Toronto's giving up Siakam in that deal, Phoenix needs to get in there and see if they can get Siakam from Houston because I don't think he's as indispensable to Houston since he's a little bit older and they would be looking to rebuild in that scenario. Let's let's turn it around and go, Philly's going to go out and get Bradley Beal. They're willing to trade Ben Simmons to do it. Simmons isn't as indispensable to Washington in that sense because, yeah, it's great that he's 24, all-NBA guy, under contract. You don't have to care about the Westbrook fit because that's not long-term. But if you are rebuilding, and people pointed this out with Houston, I still would have taken Ben Simmons but he does imply a sense of immediacy because you're burning clock with him. He's under contract through 2024, 25, no options, I believe. At the same time, how long does it take you to get good? Another two to three years. All of a sudden, he only has two years left on his deal. That leaves you with a two-year window before he starts getting antsy. Uh, if you're rebuilding, you might as well start from scratch. Can you come in and you're not getting Ben Simmons straight up from the Sixers because they don't need Aiton? And the other challenge here is matching salary. Are you willing to give up Mikhail Bridges in that deal? You give up Cameron Johnson, you give up um, Jalen Smith, you give up Jay Crowder or Sarich, then you run into the issue. I'm not saying all those guys at once, but Mikael Bridges would be, you're not giving up Paul, you're not giving up Booker. Mikael Bridges is the question mark there. If push came to shove and it meant getting Ben Simmons, I don't know what you do there if you're Phoenix. But matching salaries is tough. And then once you move Aiton, you're not just flush with all these big man options. And if you have to move Sarich, who's been your backup five, as part of the same deal because Aiton only makes... $10 million. He's their third highest paid player too. So you're, you're jamming together a few players here. Um, and one of them is going to be Jay Crowder or Sarge just because they both make, um, put it in this context, Phoenix's sixth highest paid player is Mikhail Bridges at 4.4 million. So you're trading Aiton and then one of Crowder or Sarge as part of that deal. I believe that you can probably approximate good center value somewhere. Maybe you hit the buyout market. Maybe there's another deal to be had. Uh, if you're trading your bigs, hey, bring PJ Tucker back to Phoenix. Figure out a way to make it work there. But that's I'm looking at those scenarios now more. I guess the tougher question would be, and my answer to this would be no, are you willing to move Aiton as part of a subprime deal where you're getting maybe you're deepening your roster with higher-end role players or guys who are slightly better than that? And that's where I'd be on the fence. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I understand the argument. Like, it, it all makes sense. I just, I think I just fundamentally disagree with what I'd want to do with this roster right now. Like, for me, I, I, I still keep coming back to the idea that I want to maximize the Chris Paul window, which means not putting myself through another adjustment period while I'm in the middle of the first one. And I, I still believe in Aiden's talent, um, both now 
and going forward as, as more of a centerpiece than he's allowed to be at the moment. So like I, I'm even even in that Ben Simmons scenario, if you're not getting if you're getting him without having to give up Mikhail Bridges and it's one of those lesser pieces going along with Aiden to uh, to Philadelphia, like I, I'm still not doing that, even if Simmons is the far better player in a vacuum right now. You're not trading DeAndre Ayton in a deal for if it's Ayton filler, so no Mikhail Bridges and then just picks. You're not you're not making that move. I don't think so. Just that is Simmons, blasphemous. I want you Simmons, to know that. Simmons has to have the ball in his hands to be effective. And you, that means you're taking it away from Chris Paul and, and Devin Booker. Well, right look, now. as you like, said, as Chris Paul. They are off the ball. Like, Chris Paul isn't going to be like, there forever, Adam. What happened to that take? He's not going to be there forever. But I, I don't know. Like, I just, I, I have, I, maybe it's just I have too much confidence in this core still. Here's something that I kind of thought about. If you could do it, as I don't know what the deal looks like. You're not giving up Mikhail Bridges or Cam Johnson in this scenario. It's just Aiton. But if you can get, uh, if it's Aiton filler, and I don't know what else it would take, and I don't know what that filler is, but if it's a Victor Oladipo, um, Daniel House, P.J. Tucker situation, and that's like a $30 million in salary, if that's the package where it's just Aiton and then it's filler or maybe you're you're only getting Daniel House and uh, Oladipo because you don't, need pj tucker if it means you have to give up sarich as well or have to give maybe don't want to give up john smith whatever if it's something like that are you considering it victor oladipo is i think you know what my answer is going to be (laughs) and look i don't know the only ones that i know i would do is if if it was siakam it's a no-brainer i don't toronto's not going to give up on him unless they decide to move him for beal which i don't see them doing siakam would be no-brainer for me i understand your concern with simmons a little bit more it gets a lot iffier though like once you're if if we're talking about zach levine I kind of like his fit on this roster. I don't know if I'm moving Aiton for that, um, especially when right now, even though it doesn't feel like your offense has a ton of flow, defense is just going to be your bigger long-term concern, and Zach Levine doesn't help that. I mean, once Chris Paul leaves, and now you're losing Aiton, who's been a pretty good defender, um, you have Zach Levine and Devin Booker together. Like, that's not, you know, Mikael Bridges can only do so much. We're building a different version of the Sacramento Kings then. But I would, so my point is, if you can move Aiton in a blockbuster, if you want to make that swing, I'm doing it at this point. I think I've I don't know that I've seen enough, but what I have seen has been a little bit discouraging enough. But you seem to be I wouldn't move him for just anyone. You seem to be even more stringent than I am, though. That's where. Yeah, I mean, I, I respect your stance. I just I just disagree with it, which is is nice because we don't usually have that fundamental disagreement. Well, look, that does it for us here. This was a fun mailbag. Thank you guys for your questions, as always. We got a we had a lot of really good ones. Not that we always don't, but that one we started off with between Rank Tucker, Hill, and Rose. Like great thought exercises this time around. Will Chamberlain and stuff. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Ratings and reviews on iTunes, as always, are appreciated. And this time, Adam is going to to lead us out with a shout out. Yeah, we'll leave with a shout out to whoever is going to buy the Atlanta Dream from Kelly Leffler. Apparently, according to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, that move is about to happen. So to the soon-to-be former senator, goodbye and good riddance. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.